Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Kennedy Report. I'm back with my friend Matt Gaspers. Matt, how you doing? Doing well, Kennedy. Thanks for having me on. It's always good to talk with you. It's always a good day when Matt comes on because Matt does all the research and I don't have to. And then he comes with all the facts, which is nice. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be speaking about the question of the, re the resignation of Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, I want to give a little bit of a preamble before I do that. Um, I don't have any personal problems with any individual who holds a different view on the papacy within sort of reasonable limits. And I understand that um, the very confusing time within which we live uh, facilitates or foments various reactions to the difficulties and confusion coming out of Rome. And I'm not here to fault anybody who has a different view of who is or who is not the Pope. That being said, I do agree with Matt's analysis. And that's why we're doing this show is because I believe personally it's correct and it's my channel. Um, so for all of you out there who are viewers and listeners and scholars and so forth, it is not my intention to be hosting debates or uh, various episodes with a contra position. That's just not my mandate, so to speak. This is what I believe and I'm going to share this. Uh, it is no slight to anybody, but please nobody reach out to me and say, you really got to have so-and-so on or can I come on? I'm just not going to do that. It's just not something I want to do. And I want to read a quote from a man who is a state of a contest uh, of the most reasonable sort, Mr. John Lane. Um, if individuals don't know who he is, he is a state of a contest thinker. Um, but I do read some of his work because I do find him to be extremely reasonable. And I want the reason I'm reading something from him here is because here's a man with whom I disagree on the papacy, but he has something very insightful to say about what we should do in situations when we do disagree on the papacy. I'm just going to read quickly from an essay that he wrote. And he wrote... For dogmatic state of occultism is precisely a usurpation of authority, the imposition of personal judgments of contingent facts upon others, which is the very mark of authority. A man with authority has a duty of forming a judgment personally, with or without prior consultation, and an equally clear duty in certain circumstances to impose it under pain of some kind of sanction upon those subject to him. A man without authority has no right to expect others to agree with him beyond his capacity to persuade them by argument. And he goes on to say that St. Thomas Aquinas is perfectly clear about this. And I think that quote is very adequate um, because we're talking about something with which people have, let's call them lawful disputes. And this is just the opinion of this podcast and of Matt Gaspers. And uh, that's my preamble. Uh, so everyone knows. Very good. Thank you, Kennedy. Um, now, before we get into it, if people want to read your two very well-cited, very well-sourced, lengthy and informative articles, which have been checked by a master theologian, um, where can they do that? So at this point, unfortunately, it'd be difficult to get a hard copy of the paper. So I, it's divided in the article is a two-part series published in the February, the current edition of Catholic Family News, and part two will appear in, in March. Uh, the best way to get access right now is by subscribing to our e-edition, which is a digital edition of the newspaper. You see it on your screen right now. And what's great about this is it's, it doesn't only get you access to the current newspaper, but as you can see, basically a um, an archive of back issues going back a, more than a couple of years. I'm scrolling down now so you can see all the difference. And then there's a second page of those. Um, so let's click on real quick the February issue, which is where my uh, part one of this article appears. 
So you can you can read it. This is how it appears in the paper. That's basically a PDF version of the paper itself. You can double did, did click it, on sorry, the, Matt, did it come up on a different tab? It's not showing up on the one we're sharing right here. Oh, maybe it did. Let me let me back up here. Let me just change that tab that you're sharing. Okay. Yeah, let me so let me share screen and then come up share. And let's see if that works. There you go. There we yep. go. We see it now. So this is an example from the February paper where part one of my series appears. So we have, um, let me scroll down a little bit here. Anthony Stein, Dr. Professor Anthony yes. Stein. Love it. That's right. So let's click on this one here and I'll click on my article. So let's see, is that coming through? Okay. Yeah. Yep. So. Sorry, it starts with the uh, the box for putting your name and address for paper subscribers, but uh, right. this is what it, this is what the view looks like, and you can view it. it they also this is um, a platform called Zinio Zinio.com, and they have an app that you can download for free on your phone or tablet or whatever, and you can read it anywhere. But this is just a preview of what my article looks like in the e edition. So it's exactly as it appears in the paper. You got all the footnotes, the pictures, and everything. So. Um, if folks want to visit, uh, in order to subscribe to this, you just visit catholicfamilynews.com. I, mean, I can pull that up real quick here to just show people. Um, so let me stop sharing that, and then we'll share this page. Give me just a second. Okay. There you go. So the catholicfamilynews.com and I've clicked on the new subscription tab and then this will give you all the information about how to subscribe. So uh, just also mention real quick, if you subscribe to the newspaper, if you want to get a physical paper, like I enjoy having something to hold in my hands when I'm reading, I get tired of reading on the computer screen all the time. Um, for those in the United States, it's $42 a year. Uh, for Canada, it's $47 a year. Overseas is a little more expensive for shipping costs, $78. Um, but for any of those print edition options, you you gain access to the e-edition as well. So it's a two-for-one thing. Or if you only want the e-edition, it's $32 for the year. So okay, please subscribe. That's a great idea. All right. Um, good. I'll just have myself back. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, check out Catholic Family News. Um, I'll put the link in the description to this, uh, this podcast when we're done. And uh, now, last thing, last promotion, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to Italy this fall, and uh, we're going to visit, among other things, the tomb of St. Peter, who we all know was the Pope. And here's a quick um, promo for that video, or for that, <laughs> for that <laughs> pilgrimage. The trouble in Rome, it is easy to forget about one unshakable fact. Our church is the Roman Catholic Church, and Rome is the Eternal City. What a perfect time to go on a pilgrimage to the Eternal City and the other monumental sites of Catholic heritage in beautiful Italy. Join Father Albert Calio and me this November as we tour through the shrines of Italy and the Amalfi Coast as we attend daily Mass in the Old Rite in the footsteps of St. Peter and St. Francis. Click the link in the description to register for this once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to discover the heart of the Catholic faith in the heart of of the old Roman Empire. Visit kennedyhall.ca slash Italy Wonderful. or click the link in the description. All right. And I'm happy to say that we are advertising the pilgrimage in the March issue of CFN. I hope you guys get a great turnout for that. And we both know Father Albert is wonderful, so he'll be a great yes. guide. 
Yes, uh, it's kind of like Proverbs 31, an ideal wife who can find one, a traditional Dominican who can find one, you know, and we, <laughs> and we found one. There's Father That's Crean. Right. Father Crean right. is quite good. Father Albert Calio. There's not that many traditional Dominicans left, so it's great to have one. Yes. All right. Let's get into the meat of this. Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, this is a, a two-part article. It's close to 8,000 words, I think, not including the endnotes. So it is a pretty lengthy read, but I, I tried to go in depth uh, while, you know, summarizing at the same time. I can't touch on every facet of this question, but the article is called, Is Francis the True Pope Revisiting the Debate? And the springboard, you know, the inspiration for this article series was actually a conference, an online conference held last December, which was hosted by uh, Dr. Edmund Maza and some colleagues of his. And just as an aside, I think very highly of Dr. Maza. I think he's a very nice uh, Catholic gentleman, very sincere, humble, faithful. I happen to disagree with him on this issue, but I, I do hold him in high regard. So the title of this online conference was, Is the Pope Catholic? A conference seeking the truth about the two popes, with the latter being a reference to Benedict XVI and Francis, of course. And for those who may not be familiar with Dr. Maza, he's become pretty well known in recent years for promoting the position that Benedict XVI never validly resigned the office of Supreme Pontiff, and therefore Jorge Mario Bergoglio was never validly elected and is thus an anti-pope. Uh, so he was joined by some other folks, Father Paul Kramer, Anne Barnhart, uh, Elizabeth Yor, and actually Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano made an appearance. He gave a, a presentation, a video address, which I might uh, quote from. I quote from it at the end of part two of this series, but I might bring up that quote sometime during the broadcast today. Um, but it had been several years since we covered this issue in the paper, and I thought, you know, with this online conference, and I don't know about you, Kennedy, but it seems like more and more people are, this option is becoming more and more attractive to people as things get worse and worse. I don't know what your take is on that. Yeah, I mean, I haven't found in my circles that the particular view that uh, Benedict didn't resign is the view, mainly because my circles are mainly SSPX circles, so uh, the old war dogs in the traditional movement weren't huge fans of Ratzinger in the first place at the beginning. So they're not really right. looking. It's more, I find more um, just the uh, very reasonable, understandable idea that uh, Pope Francis just could be an anti-Pope for some reason, you know, just because of Pope Francis, <laughs> you know, right. for all the reasons one could, you know, uh, could, could explain. Uh, so definitely I find, you know, a lot of people are just kind of, in the position where they're thinking to themselves, okay, we got Pachamama, we've got everything else at Abu Dhabi, we've got this Viducha Suplicans thing. So this is mm. this is clearly a uh, an understandable position people are looking to to clear up. Right, and maybe I should clarify. I think within mainstream cat more mainstream Catholic circles, not necessarily traditionalist Catholic, although I think it is present there as well. But I think the idea, the holding out hope somehow that benedict did not validly resign and that's kind of like an exit or a uh an escape hatch from the, the nightmare that we're in sort of thing that's something that i've what seen do you think? i've seen that yeah. but i also talked to father nicks about it who's who's who has of the position um that benedict uh didn't resign but he also said to me he didn't hold that position because he believed uh, benedict was like the traditionalist savior it just he, he held that position because 
he just believed that position. So it's all, you know, right. these are all, all over the map that people hold these positions. Right. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially in part one of my series, I, I stick to focusing on Benedict's resignation and the various uh, objections that are brought forth. Um, one book that I read and while doing research for this series, uh, which I find to be a very good resource is by Stephen O'Reilly and it's called valid question mark. Um, I forget the subtitle escapes the resignation of Benedict the 16th. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, And he goes, I mean, he does a deep dive into every possible objection that I'm aware of. Now I, I hit the main one. Like I focus on the main, what I consider to be the main two reasons why people reject uh, Benedict's resignation is valid. And I summarize in the article, um, basically it boils down to two, in my opinion. <clears throat> so first of all, um, such individuals base their belief on an alleged convergence of evidence based on several texts, those from Benedict XVI uh, and others read in light of two particular canons from the current code of canon law, Right. Uh, all of which proves to them that Benedict's resignation was invalid, typically for one of two reasons. And these are the two. First of all, either he did not use the correct Latin term in his declaratio, which is the formal name of his resignation announcement on February 11th, uh, 2013. And or number two, he held an erroneous understanding of the papacy and was thus in, quote, substantial error, a, a term from canon law when he attempted to resign. And I know that that, that uh, in particular is what Dr. Maza holds pretty strongly is that Benedict was in substantial error and then could not possibly uh, validly resign for that reason. So in my article, in part one, I go through some folks who are familiar with this debate might be familiar with the Latin terms munus and ministerium. Those are what it really boils down to. These are the relevant Latin terms at play. Um, those who hold that Benedict's resignation was invalid compare the text of Benedict's Declaratio to the pertinent text of canon law and believe they have undeniable evidence that he failed to validly resign. So we don't have time, of course, to read through the whole Declaratio. I provide the full text in my article, but essentially in the key places, um, Benedict uses, he uses the different, he uses sometimes munus, when it's in mm -hmm. the English translation says ministry, but sometimes it's munus, and then sometimes it's the, the Latin term ministerium. And people are maybe wondering why is this relevant? So as I explained in the article, uh, Canon 332 section two, which is what deals with, you know, if a Pope resigns, this is what the Canon says. And obviously Canon law, like other Vatican documents, the official text is always in Latin, and then you have English translations. So the English translation on the Vatican website says, if it happens that the Roman pontiff resigns his office, and in the Latin it's muneri, mm -hmm. it is required for validity that the resignation is made freely and properly manifested, but not that it is accepted by anyone. So here's where these Latin words come into play in the Declaratio. So Benedict said, for this reason, and well aware of the seriousness of the act, with full freedom, I declare that I renounce the ministry, and in Latin, ministerio, of Bishop of Rome, successor of St. Peter. So those who claim he didn't use the right Latin word, because in, in canon law, it says if he resigns his office, which is munari, 
well, why didn't Benedict say munari or munus uh, in his declaratio? That's the argument. So it, in their minds, it proves he didn't he didn't say it right. So therefore, it wasn't valid. Um, so I'm going to quote a little. I provide this quote in my article. This is from uh, Stephen O'Reilly's book, Valid: The Resignation of Benedict the Sixteenth. He observes in that book that the quote, the canon in question specifically lists only two conditions that are required for validity. The first is that the resignation is made freely. And I know there are arguments, as I'm sure Stephen recognizes, some people claim, well, Benedict was under duress, he was pressured to do this. But he said multiple on multiple occasions after his resignation that to call it into question on those grounds is is absurd, I think was the word that Benedict used. So even if that was the case, you know, we have to take the man at his word. We have no actual evidence that he was pressured to do it, even though, you know, behind the scenes, who knows what was going on. Um, so Stephen says, I just, I just want to jump yeah. in there quick to duress. So um, this is kind of like that, uh, that term invincible ignorance. These terms are very specific, okay? Uh, everyone is under some sort of duress from some way to make some sort of decision when it's pressure. But for something to be invalidated right. because of duress, it must mean that uh, they're in a position where uh, basically uh, they're incapable of making a free will decision, essentially because of some sort of grave fear. And if someone's going to argue that then they're going to have to prove that that's a valid situation that he was under. Of course, the Pope has enemies. Every Pope has right. enemies. I mean, you know, Peter had an enemy. His name was Judas, you know, like every yes. single, every single Pope has wolves around him who want something out of him. Um, but to, to claim that Benedict was under duress is a very substantial claim that's going to require a lot of leaps, in my opinion. Right. And it, it can't just be a bare assertion. Like there has to be actual, yeah. you have to promote, you have to present actual evidence that proves the case. Yeah. So, so back to Stephen O'Reilly's book, he's, he's talking about these two conditions that are required according to canon law. The first is that the resignation is made freely. The second is that it be duly manifested. That's it, he says. The use of the word munus is not given as being among that which is required for valid re for a valid resignation. Furthermore, O'Reilly says there is no specified formula for a papal resignation that requires a specific word or words be used to convey the reality of the resignation. Uh, the reality is there are various words that might be used to convey the idea of the papacy, uh, and which can be understood can be used to signify the renunciation of it. And what I like about O'Reilly is he cites from some commentaries on, on the code of canon law, so canonists, experts in the field. And uh, this is what says, so O'Reilly's comments seem to square with what is said in this commentary. For example, it says, the general provisions on the resignation of an office are found in canons 80, or, excuse me, 187 through 189, these legal regulations are only guidelines since due to his supreme power, the Pope can always pass new laws and stands above already valid laws. So the Pope, in other words, the Pope is not bound to manifest his resignation in a particular way 
by using a predetermined formula, which actually does not exist. Yeah. Um, the other facet of this munus versus ministerium is addressed by our friend and uh, Latinist Ryan Grant, who published an excellent article on this subject a few years ago. At 1 Peter um, 5? At, at, yep, 1 yep. Peter 5. And he essentially explains that uh, the difference between munus and ministerium does not hold water for several reasons. That's how he puts it in the article. And, and he goes, you know, gives citations to various um, Latin dictionaries and such that they really are interchangeable. Um, yeah, I mean, and all, it's, it's like, um, you know, if, if I don't know if you're if you have a your pastor is going to resign from his pastoral duties of your parish if he does a speech saying you know i'm no longer going to be the head of this parish or something i'm no longer going to be your priest or i'm I'm no longer going to be exercising my ministry over the parish i mean we could start playing with words and say well he didn't say he's no longer my pastor and it's like well i mean the context and the intention behind it we must assume that there's a, a, a sort of a a synonymous meaning going on given the context of what he's saying right and even Cardinal Burke, um, I'm pretty sure O'Reilly cites him in his book, and I cite the quote in my article. Um, Cardinal Burke told LifeSite News in 2019 that it seems clear, I'm quoting now, Benedict uses interchangeably munus and ministerium. It doesn't seem that he's making a distinction between the two. And further, Cardinal Burke says it's clear from the declaration that he was renouncing the munus. And let's go back to the declaration itself real quick and just read read that uh, sentence again, the crucial sentence. For this reason, so this is Benedict, February 11th, 2013. For this reason, and well aware of the seriousness of this act with full freedom, I declare that I renounce the ministry of Bishop of Rome, successor of St. Peter, entrusted to me by the Cardinals on 19 April 2005, in such a way, he said, that as from February 28, 2013 at 2000 hours, the See of Rome, the See of St. Peter will be vacant. Right. So I don't, he couldn't have been clearer on that point. If he's gonna resign in such a way that the See will be vacant, obviously he's resigning the office. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So he means so it's gonna, he means there's going to be no pope, <laughs> right? And he and he specifically says, you know, this is the result of that is going to be the need for a conclave. He says um, the see will be vacant, and a conclave to elect the new supreme pontiff will have to be convoked by those whose competence it is. So if there if there's a need for a new supreme pontiff, which is the bishop of Rome, the pope. Clearly, he intended to resign and vacate that office, vacate the chair. Today, we're celebrating the feast of the chair of St. Peter. He mm -hmm. vacated that chair, effective uh, 20, 20 hundred hours on February 28, 2013. That's right. So that's kind of the, the munus versus ministerium argument. The other one that I focus on in part one of my series is the substantial error, which I think is a little more of an interesting argument uh, which kind of, so I spend quite a bit of time on it actually. So essentially some hold that Benedict's resignation was invalid due to what the code of canon law calls substantial error in canon 188. Here's what that canon says. And this is in the section of canon law dealing with resignations in general from ecclesiastical office, not just the Pope specifically. So it says, quote, a resignation made out of grave fear that is in 
inflicted unjustly or out of malice, substantial error or simony is invalid by the that last phrase is what they really the those who hold his resignation as invalid really hold up as okay, if he's in substantial error, then it's an auto, it's automatically by the law itself. No one needs to make some sort of formal declaration, the argument goes. Uh, if if we can demonstrate that he was in substantial error, it's invalid by the law itself, and nothing more needs to be declared by a competent authority. Let me just um, jump in there quick. Um, go ahead. While, while you were reading, the, see the gremlins, they don't like technology. While you were reading the oh. canon, I'll read the canon yep. again because it, it, it went garbly there, like you know the Zoom robot voice thing it does sometimes oh, on Zoom, these calls. Okay. So I'll read it. Canon 188 says, a resignation made out of grave fear that is inflict inflicted unjustly or out of malice, substantial error or simony is invalid by the law itself. So key terms there, grave fear, not just fear, grave fear, um, substantial error or simony is invalid by the law itself. That's just so everyone knows that. Yes. Yes. And, um, O'Reilly, I'll quote from his book again, as I do in the article, he just provides a really good, succinct um, summary of what this position is. So this is O'Reilly summarizing the position that Benedict was in substantial error and therefore his resignation was invalid. Pope Benedict XVI held erroneous views about the papacy even before he was elected Pope, so the argument goes, by which he erroneously believed that the papacy could be bifurcated or divided into a papal diarchy uh, comprised of an active and a contemplative component. Benedict attempted to retain either a part or the whole of the papal munus when in the Declaratio he resigned the Petrine ministry or ministerio, signaling that he intended to resign only the active ministry while retaining the Petrine office or munus in whole or in part. Uh, however, given it is impossible to split the papacy, Benedict's attempted partial resignation constituted a substantial error which invalidated his resignation per Canon 188. So that's Stephen O'Reilly's summary of this. And he also explains in his book that um, most of these folks also hold that Benedict held to some sort of sacramental understanding of the papacy like the papacy is a sacrament and so once you accept it you can never really give it up entirely that's that's the argument whereas we know it's really a juridical office that can be accepted and law you know lost or uh, through resignation or god forbid um heresy that's a whole topic for a whole other uh, show of course so now, proponents of this so let me just um and the reasoning behind that, if I recall from some of this work, is because of some earlier work of Pope Benedict, where he seemed to talk about the papacy in sort of a sacramental way. Is that something you found in your work? Yeah, and Dr. Maza goes over those texts, the, the pertinent parts of them in the, the online conference last December. I quote from a few of them, you know, within space limitations for the article in the paper. But there are a few key texts uh, that I go over and quote from in my article. The first one uh, is Benedict's last general audience. Almost all of the people who hold this position look to that text as like a, you know, a smoking gun, so to speak. Okay. So his last general audience on February 27th of 2013, the day before his resignation took effect, uh, this text is very, very often cited because he talked about, I'll just quote a little bit from this final address. Um, 
the always in regard to accepting the papacy, this is Benedict speaking, is also a forever. There can no longer be a return to the private sphere. My decision to resign the active exercise of the ministry does not revoke this. Uh, he goes on to say, I no longer bear the, the power of office for the governance of the church, uh, but in the service of prayer, I remain, so to speak, in the enclosure of St. Peter. So they take these phrases uh, as, you know, confirming or validating their theory that he held to some kind of an erroneous understanding of the papacy. Hmm. But as I observe in my article, his statement that he resigned the active exercise of the ministry. I was going to let me skip ahead a little bit. Um, what is he? So he says, yeah, if to remain in the enclosure of St. Peter, these are held up as proof that Benedict um, believed he would retain somehow the papal munus following his resignation. But what's interesting is he says in that text that I just read that he would no longer bear the power of office. Mm -hmm. So you kind of can't really have it both ways. I mean, if he, if he thinks that he's going to somehow remain like a passive or contemplative um, Pope in some manner, then why would he say, I will no longer bear the power of office? Mm -hmm. And the other irony about this last general audience, when I read the, the full text and not simply these, these poll quotes, um, I found that he also asked for prayers, quote, for the cardinals who are called to so weighty a task, that is of electing his successor, as he explicitly stated in his declaratio, and for the new successor of the apostle Peter. May the Lord accompany him with the light and strength of his spirit. Hmm. And then that same day, his last general audience, he also told English-speaking pilgrims that were in attendance that day, the decision I have made after much prayer is the fruit of a serene trust in God's will and a deep love of Christ's church. I will continue to accompany the church with my prayers, and I ask each of you to pray for me and for the new pope. So again, he's recognizing there's going to be a new pope. I'm not going to be in office the next day. So, so it seems to me, um, Dr. John Joy, I never read the book, uh, but it's called uh, Disputed Questions of Papal Infallibility or something like that uh, from Ojusti, Ojusti Press, Dr. Kwasniewski's yeah. uh, imprint he has there. And, um, but I have read some of Dr. Joy's article work on 1 Peter 5, and he makes an... Um, he makes a, an assertion that I think is very Thomistic uh, when I compare mm -hmm. it to the thought of Thomas. And essentially, we must interpret things in sort of the strictest understanding, um, basically mm -hmm. in the pursuit of clarity. Um, so while one could say there seem to be things that are strange that he's saying, the things that are clear are that he believes there will be no more pope after he resigns and there will be a new pope. Um, mm -hmm. so, so in the interest of, you know, even if I'm trying to give most benefit out here, even if one were to say to themselves, you know, maybe one day when we're on the other side of the divide, God willing, we're in the right place. Maybe we'll find out there was some weird monkey business with this papacy resignation in some way that we don't understand. Nonetheless, for, for the interest of clarity and, and, um, well, basically just as a satisfactory explanation that is in line with the weight of his argument, it seems pretty mm -hmm. clear to me that whatever sort of strange ecclesiology Benedict may have about what it means to be a resigned Pope, 
it seems to me that he's pretty clear that he's he's not going to be the Pope and there will be a new Pope. And that seems like it should be the interpretive key for the rest of his words. Right. Absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely right. And uh, I'll give you a couple more examples of that the, the folks who reject Benedict's resignation as being invalid typically cite uh, Dr. Maza, for example, and others. So they they pretty much always cite this um, May 20th, 2016 speech given by Archbishop Georg Ganswein yeah. uh, at the Pontifical Gregorian University. And note, it's a speech by Archbishop Ganswein. It's not Benedict himself saying right. these words. Now, there are claims made that Benedict personally edited and approved the final text before it was delivered, but they're to my knowledge, there has, that's never actually been proven. That's simply been asserted. So right. big difference between assertion and, and proof. So just to give you an idea of this speech, and I provide a, a link to the full text in my article in the footnotes, uh, he's talking about, uh, Archbishop Ganswein is talking about this, what he calls the new institution of Pope Emeritus, which is what Benedict wanted to be called, which I agree was very bizarre and confusing yeah, and shouldn't shouldn't have been done just like he shouldn't have been wearing the the white cassock and and all that kind of stuff it just added to the confusion in my opinion um so ganswine said in this speech um he meaning benedict has left the papal throne and yet he has not at all abandoned this ministry since the election of his successor francis on march 13 2013 ganswine said in uh, 2016 there are not therefore two popes, but de facto an expanded ministry with an active member and a contemplative member. Mm. This, and he went on to explain, this is why Benedict has not given up either his name or the white cassock. This is why the correct name by which to address him even today in 2016 was your holiness. And this is why he has not retired to a secluded monastery, but within the Vatican. Um, and he, yeah, he describes strange. all that of this. Strange. <laughs> I yeah. agree. It's very yeah. strange. He yeah. says it's a, a new stage in the history of the papacy. So yeah. granted, this speech has some problems, I think. Um, but at the same time, uh, Archbishop Ganswine has offered public clarifications um, on multiple occasions, which nullify these claims being made that Benedict did not validly resign. I give a couple examples in my article. For example, he told LifeSite News in 2019, quote, I have already cleared up the misunderstanding several times. It makes no sense at all. No, even more, it is counterproductive to insist on this misunderstanding and to quote me again and again. This is absurd, Ganswine said, and leads to self-harm. I have already clearly said that there is only one Pope, one legitimately elected and incumbent Pope, and that is Francis. So that's what he told LifeSite in 2019. And there's, so I wanted to give one example in the article of Benedict's own words, which I know Dr. Maza has quoted from and others have, um, which they claim is proof that he held a, an erroneous view of the papacy. So this was from a, uh, 2016, it's a book-length interview that um, Pope Benedict uh, conducted with German journalist Peter Seewald. I think they collaborated on, on multiple occasions before he passed away. And so this is in chapter two of that, um, of that, what's the name of the book here? Let me see. 
uh, Last Testament in his That's own right. words. Well, Benedict the Sixteenth with Peter Seewald. It pub- was published in 2016. So Seewald asked Benedict, in the resignation speech, the reason you gave for relinquishing your office was the diminishing of your energy. But is a slowdown in the ability to perform reason enough to climb down from the chair of Peter? And this is how Benedict responded. One can, of course, make that accusation, but it would be a functional misunderstanding. The follower of Peter is not merely bound to a function. The office enters into your very being. This is Benedict speaking. In this regard, fulfilling a function is not the only criteria. He goes on to say, then again, the Pope must do concrete things, must keep the whole situation in his sights, must know which priorities to set, and so on. Um, He goes on to say, even if you say a few of these things can be struck off, there remain so many things which are essential that if the capability to do them is no longer there, for me anyway, someone else might see it otherwise, now's the time to free up the chair. So even within that quote, as you can see at the end, even though he distinguishes between the function and the office supposedly entering into your very being, I think he he is trying to understand the papacy in more a kind of a spiritual sense, but ultimately he says it's time to free up the chair. I mean, that clearly means resign the office. If I yeah, and if I may here, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I'm writing this book for Sophia on modernism. The the line I underlined, which you have bolded in the article, let me read it again here. It's from Ganswine, and he's talking about a new stage. He calls it a new stage in the history of the papacy. This, you know. Granted, a lot of this stuff is confusing, but this is this is evidence of this is evidence of the modernism. This is evidence of right. uh, you know, Christ says, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. There is a yes means yes, no means no in Benedict's resignation. You know, I'm no longer Pope, there's gonna be a new one. But we shouldn't be surprised if we see this gobbledygook from these post-conciliar theologians because this is their wheelhouse and they don't know how to operate otherwise. Mm. They're always offering clarification. It's like, well, there's a new type of papacy and there's a new spirit of the papacy and there's a new stage and blah, 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 blah. And then, oh no, I've caused confusion. Let me clarify. Yeah, he's no longer the Pope. So I get it. There's confusion. But when you but even with these modernists, when pressed, sometimes they do give us a clarification, which I say, I think we find. Right. Yeah. So for me, you know, the, the what clenches the argument in favor of Benedict was not in substantial error is actually what the um, what commentaries on the Code of Canon Law have to say about substantial error itself. Stephen O'Reilly quotes from this in his book, and I provide those quotes in my article. So he quotes from um, a book called The Code of Canon Law, a text and commentary, which was published back in 1986. And it explains, quote, substantial error is a mistaken judgment that is not of minor importance and is truly a cause of the consequent decision. That's critical to understand. It has to be the cause of the consequent decision to resign. Benedict did not resign because he held a false understanding of the papacy. That had nothing to do with it, even if he did hold to some errors in that regard. He said, I'm slowing down. I'm getting weaker. I don't have the stamina anymore to bear the the burdens of the office. That's why I'm stepping down. It had nothing to do with any claims about he held a weird view of the papacy. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You you make a good point. Listen, you know, just to clarify, ladies and gentlemen, um, 
we have the resignation. The resignation is very clear. The the people commenting on the Latin usage, you know, um, listen, I can read Latin pretty well because of my background in Spanish, French, and Italian, but I would never I would never claim to know how to use Latin better than someone like um, Ryan Grant. You know, so if a guy like that is saying that oh, these words are used all the time the same way, I'm just kind of going to go with that because I think that's the best way to do it. Right. Yeah. And then a, a newer uh, commentary on the Code of Canon Law, which was published, I think several of the same people contributed to it, uh, published, I think, in the year 2000, 2001. This is what that commentary has to say. Substantial error is a mistaken judgment which affects the essential elements of the resignation in terms of either the cause or motivation for resignation or the nature of the resignation and its consequences. And then it gives a practical example. An example could be a diocesan finance officer who mistakenly thinks one must resign when a new bishop is named, even though one's term has not expired. So that's an example of how you have this mistaken belief, this error in your thinking, oh, I have to resign because of this reason, and that's why I resigned, even though it was a mistaken assumption. That's simply not in play with Benedict's resignation. Mm -hmm. Here's what he said in his Declaratio as regarding why he resigned. After having repeatedly examined my conscience before God, I have come to the certainty that my strengths due to an advanced age are no longer suited to an adequate exercise of the Petrine ministry. That right. was his reason. Whether you agree with it or not, that was the reason. It had nothing to do with errors about the papacy. Right. Okay, that's good. And that's that's basically the end of the first uh, part, correct? That's in the February paper? Correct, yes. So in the second half, and I know we've been going for a while now, so I'll, I'll keep it brief, but... Um, you know, the, the doctrine, which is basically the common doctrine of the church um, on this question, there's, it's, it's a doctrine called the peaceful and universal acceptance of a pope is proof that he is the valid pope. And I know that Dr. Maza and others, um, you know, don't really give much credence. They think that, it, that this doctrine has been um, violated or contradicted by historical circumstances for example during the great western schism i know is one that dr maza cited during that online conference last december but i i show in this article that it really is you know it's by very credible preconciliar non-modernist theologians it's uh, classified as being theologically certain so it's not a dogma of the faith it hasn't been formally defined as a dogma or something, but it is the common doctrine of the church yes. held by many, many theologians throughout the, the centuries. So <clears throat> this is something else which really proves to me, um, even, even apart from all of the claims about he didn't use the right Latin term or he was in substantial error, this really proves that, that Fra Francis Bergoglio is the true pope. Um, so I quote several authorities, theological authorities in this uh, part two of my article, which will come out in the May, or excuse me, the March paper. So one of them is Cardinal Louis Bilot, uh, uh, famous Cardinal Jesuit, Bilo. famous Jesuit theologian yeah. from his work Tracticus de Ecclesia Christi. Um, he actually served in the Holy Office under Pope St. Pius X, and if I recall yes. correctly, he may have been involved with the writing of Paschendi. I think he probably was. Yeah. Um, so this is what he says regarding this question of peaceful and universal acceptance. 
finally, whatever you think about the possibility or impossibility of the aforementioned hypothesis, he's writing in this section of his, of his tome about the possibility of a heretical pope, at least one point must be considered absolutely incontrovertible and placed firmly above any doubt whatever. Cardinal Below, the adhesion of the universal church will always in itself be an infallible sign of the legitimacy of a determined pontiff, and therefore also of the existence of all the conditions required for the legitimacy itself. It is not necessary to look far for the proof of this, but we find it immediately in the promise and the infallible providence of Christ. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and behold, I shall be with you all days. Quotes from our Lord in the Gospels. Um, and he says, as will become even more clear by what we shall say later, God can permit that at times a vacancy in the apostolic see can be prolonged for a long time, he can also permit doubt to arise about the legitimacy of this or that election. He cannot, however, permit that the whole church accept as pontiff he who is not so truly and legitimately. And he goes on to put a fine point on this. Therefore, from the moment in which the Pope is accepted by the church and united to her as the head of the body, it is no longer permitted to raise doubts about a possible vice of election or a possible lack of any condition whatsoever necessary for legitimacy. For the aforementioned adhesion of the church heals in the root all fault in the election and proves infallibly the existence of all the required conditions. So, wow, that's a, that's a bombshell quote for sure. That reminds me of a, a principle in canon law called sanation. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, I dealt with that in my book, SSPX, The Defense. Um, there are, in certain cases, uh, limits to a pope sanating certain canonical questions, which was understood in the preconciliar manuals. Nonetheless, the general understanding is that, uh, you know, what sanation is, is basically, um, you know, there's dispute about something legally. Canon lawyers are just lawyers at the end of the day, and lawyers disagree on things and can be wrong. And... Um, mm -hmm. So basically, even if there was some monkey business in some sort of trial, if the Pope comes to it and accepts the decision, then it's been sanated. It's been, it's been, you know, the, the, uh, the faults have been, uh, rooted out, so to, so to speak. Um, and yes. that seems to be a similar line of thinking. Right. And basically Cardinal Below is simply repeating what St. Alphonsus Liguori said a couple centuries prior. Uh, so Cardinal Below was, uh, he died in 1931. Um, Alphonsus Liguori died in 1787, and this is what the saint, the doctor of moral theology, said about this question. It is of no importance that in past centuries some pontiff was illegitimately elected or took possession of the pontificate by fraud. It is enough that he was accepted afterwards by the whole church, since by such acceptance he would have become the true pontiff. St. Alphonsus Liguori. And I provide other quotes, for example, from Cardinal Charles Journet, another uh, very good uh, theologian, died in 1975, who cites uh, John of St. Thomas, who uh, lived back in the late 1500s into the mid-1600s, a famous Dominican theologian. And he was actually known as one of the foremost interpreters of St. Thomas Aquinas, so a, a very heavy hitter in his day. 
this is what he wrote about this whole issue. Uh, it is immediately of divine faith that this particular man, rightfully elected and accepted by the church, is the sovereign pontiff and the successor of Peter. The conclusion is shown to be de fide in itself and for us by virtue of the election accepted pacifically, meaning peacefully, by the church. It is impossible that the church err in accepting a sovereign pontiff in particular, since it accepts him as the supreme and animated rule in proposing things of faith. Um, and this is something, another crucial point in the context of this discussion, peaceful and universal acceptance. Um, it basically establishes the pontificate of the man elected as a dogmatic what's called a dogmatic fact, uh, fact, excuse me, a secondary object of, of the church's infallibility. And I quote from a Father E. Sylvester Berry to get, for those aren't, who aren't familiar with this technical theological language, uh, he explains in one of his books, a dogmatic fact is one that has not been divinely revealed, yet it is so intimately connected with a doctrine of faith hmm. that without certain knowledge of the fact, there can be no certain knowledge of the doctrine. So he gives an example. Hmm. Was the First Vatican Council truly ecumenical? Was Pius IX a legitimate pope? Was the election of Pius XI valid? Uh, such questions must be decided with certainty before decrees issued by any council or pope can be accepted as infallibly true or binding on the church. So you see the connection there. If we can't have infallible certainty about who the pope is at a given time, then as uh, Monsignor Gerard Van Noort observes in one of his books, I quote from him as well, he says, um, one can readily see that on these facts, uh, hang the questions of whether the, the decrees of the First Vatican Council are infallible. You know, in other words, was the First Vatican Council legitimately uh, assembled? Was it a truly an ecumenical council? Was Pius XII legitimately elected Bishop of Rome? Um, you know, to sort of give a practical example, if we don't know with infallible, infallible certitude that the Pope is the Pope, if he issues a dogmatic definition, how do we know that that's truly dogma or not if we don't know that he's truly the pope we the church right. has to have a means of knowing that the pope is truly the pope and the, that means is the peaceful and universal acceptance that's my understanding okay um, that, i that did want to bring up sorry i was just want to jump ahead. in um yeah this okay this is something that i think is linked to a conversation that i i've had before um, with uh, folks about the Society of St. Pius X, and I'll say something like, and actually Dr. Kwasniewski in his new book, Bound by Truth, which is a very good read, I'm about two-thirds, I've been talking about a lot on my show lately. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as a traditionalist, people will come to you and they'll say, well, what do you think? You're more Catholic than the Pope? Are you more than the Pope? And their, their assertion is essentially, well, who are you to think that you can say that something from the Pope or from the conciliar paradigm is against the history of the faith or whatever. And you say, listen, a lay person can have certitude about matters that are just simply dogmatic facts or dogmas of the church. Um, mm -hmm. You have an intellect, you have a reason, you have a will, you can conform your mind to what you know to be the external reality. And then that's your infallible sign that that thing is true, unless your brain doesn't work, unless you've gone insane. Um, right. So what these men are saying is that a Pope is the Pope. He's elected, he's accepted, 
the elections can be weird. The man could be a bad man, but it's not a, it's not a, uh, even the way that popes are elected can change. You know, it's, it's not, uh, mm -hmm. and, and if I may say, I think this articles, these sets of, sets of articles are important in this larger conversation of people truly understanding the papacy. Um, there is right. uh, people like the term, uh, you know, hyper papalist or ultramontane and thing and ultramontane can be a good term depending on how you use it. But, but nonetheless, um, I think we just, I think what we're seeing right now with all these debates about the papacy and Benedict and so forth, I think it's more indicative of something like we just kind of have um, a, a muddled confusion about the papacy. I think, um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, we look at the, the realistic and very, what's, what's interesting too, is these theologians you're citing, these theologians are from a very ultramontane era. Um, where they wouldn't even conceive of a Pope Francis being possible. Um, you know, right. we're talking about uh, theologians during the reign of the, you know, the, the Gregories and the Piuses of the, ninth, the 19th century and Leo XIII, Pius X, 11th, 12th. We're talking about people working, working on their theology during a time of, of excellent papacies. And, mm -hmm. and even they're being extremely practical. They're not appealing to the holiness. They're not appealing to the goodness of the Pope. They're just saying it's just simply a fact don't overcomplicate it. That's what I get from it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. And basically, as I said earlier, it boils down to in order to have infallible certitude that a dogma defined by a given pope is truly a dogma, for example, the Immaculate Conception under Pius IX, the Assumption under Pius XII, in order to accept those as dogmas, we have to know with infallible certitude that those popes were actual popes. And the means by which we do that has nothing to do with their personal sanctity or anything like that. It's that they were peacefully and universally accepted by the church. That's how we know. And I do want to, I did want to point out uh, before we wrap up here. So Dr. Maza gave one example during this, uh, the online conference last December, he questioned the authority of this teaching um, on the grounds that historical fact contradicts the theory. And he brought up the example of um, the beginning of the Great Western Schism when Urban VI was elected. And then months later, the cardinals who elected him basically changed their mind because they he wasn't being very nice to them. He was being pretty harsh towards them. And they elected an anti-pope who took the name Clement VII, who was also, he was actually one of the cardinals who participated in the conclave that elected Urban VI, if I recall the history correctly. Yep. And so Maza essentially said, this invalid election was not healed when all the cardinals universally and peacefully accepted Clement VII. And as I observe in my article, Yes, that's true, but the reason is that the See of Peter was not vacant at the time, so there, so there couldn't be peaceful and universal acceptance of a true successor when the seat was not vacant. It was still occupied by the true Pope, Urban VI. Um, and I go through some of that history and quote from the Catholic Encyclopedia, where they, it says, for example, that the Cardinals, after they, they actually elected Urban VI twice in one day on April 8th. 1378. And then afterwards, they enthroned him first at the Vatican Palace and later at St. John Lateran. Uh, finally, on April 18th of that year, they solemnly crowned him at St. Peter's Basilica. So these are all signs, clear signs of peaceful and universal acceptance of him as the true Pope. But then 
as the article, this Catholic encyclopedia article explains, his character kind of radically shifted. And, you know, maybe the Cardinals had some um, some valid reasons for being upset with him because he he this formerly very soft spoken, humble man kind of turned into this um, bit of a tyrant and very harsh with them. But it also, I also quote from, or provide a quote from St. Catherine of Siena, who we all know was alive at the time and was involved in this debate going on, who is the true Pope. Uh, she wrote to the schismatic cardinals, and this is what she told them. I know what moves you to denounce him, meaning Urban VI. Uh, she said it was your self-love which can brook no correction. Hmm. For before he began to bite you with words and wished to draw the thorns out of your sweet garden, you confessed and announced to us, the little sheep, that Pope Urban VI was true Pope. So the irony is that uh, the Great Western Schism actually occurred precisely because the cardinals of the day chose to reject the man whom they had peacefully and universally accepted as the Pope. That's what caused the Great Western Schism. Yeah, I remember reading about that uh, that Pope and... Uh... It seemed like he lost his mind, but nonetheless, he was elected properly. Right. Um, right. So it's just it's a, it's a bad reaction, but it doesn't change the fact that he was elected. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, that's kind of that's a brief overview of this this uh, article series, which I mentioned is I think close to to eight thousand words. So it's you definitely get your money's worth if you subscribe to the to the paper to read this and get all the the footnotes, citations, and everything else. Uh, but as I say in the article, and I just want to make this very clear, I don't hold the position that I do because I'm a fan of Pope Francis. I think people who are familiar with my work know that, you know, probably don't need to say it, but just to reiterate it, I hold the position that I've explained during this show because it is the position of the church and in accord with her infallible judgment. Um, you know, as I say in the article, it'll it'll be for the church herself to decide the question of not only Pope Francis, but the lat, you know, all the post-conciliar, conciliar, post-conciliar popes who have led the church into this catastrophic situation we find ourselves in today. Um, but we can't take it upon ourselves as private individuals to, to make that kind of a judgment, uh, whether or not the Pope is valid or not. That's simply not within our purview as laity or even even as um, clergy. We just can't do it. Do you mind if I end with uh, Car uh, uh, Bishop Vigano's quote that you have at the end of the article here? I can read that for the audience because I think this. Yeah, I was up. I wanted to bring definitely wanted to bring that up. So just to recap, uh, Archbishop Vigano addressed the online conference last December and he had some very, you know, strong words for Pope Francis. But ultimately, towards the end of his speech, he said the following that Kennedy's going to share. Yeah, he said, can we therefore be morally certain that the tenant of Santa Marta is a false prophet? My answer is yes. What we cannot do, because we do not have the authority, is to officially declare that Jorge Mario Bergoglio is not Pope. The terrible impasse in which we find ourselves makes any human solution impossible. Our task must not be to grapple with abstract canonist speculations, but to resist with all our strength and with the help of God's grace, the explicitly destructive action of the Argentine Jesuit. Rejecting with courage and determination any collaboration even indirectly with him and his accomplices. 
So Bishop Vigano has a very, very strong words for Pope Francis, as everybody knows. He believes he's a false prophet, not the false prophet from Apocalypse, but maybe a, a type. Right. Uh, but even he is saying, we don't have the authority to say with certainty he's not Pope. And this goes back to even my uh, quotation earlier, uh, my citation of a very reasonable and learned uh, state of a contest, Mr. John Lane, who himself uh, espouses that he personally is is morally certain that the, the, the sea is vacant, but he rejects, and he uses in his article, he says, energetically, he, he rejects energetically um, the notion that one can dogmatize that and expect it of another. And I'm not suggesting that the individuals who have been critiqued in this show necessarily expect that of another person. In fact, Dr. Mazza does not act like that. So that's not a, that's not a critique of Dr. Mazza in the slightest. But nonetheless, mm. you do find this, you know, amongst the state of a contest. I get this all the time in my comments on my YouTube channel. I am sure there'll be a, a dozen or two. There'll probably be like 300 comments this video, depending on how it does. And um, I get answers all the time. It's like, you know, Kennedy, the only thing you have to do now is admit there's no Pope. Otherwise, everything you say is false or something like that. And <laughs> it's like, listen, buddy, I get it. That's your belief. But even the Sede, one of the best Sede intellectuals we have, and the harshest critic of Pope Francis probably alive today in the Episcopacy, they're both saying that even if one holds that position, it's not something we can hold others to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, absolutely right. All right. Do you think, I think we, we did one hour and we made a lot of friends. And uh, I, we covered all of it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I'll just pull up Catholic Family News one more time for you uh, so you can see how to get that. You see it on the screen. Just go to catholicfamilynews.com. You can click on the February edition. You can click the preview there. Uh, it brings you right to here. And, uh, you know, you can go down and... Um, I think it, can... I think the option to subscribe is at the top of that page, if I remember correctly. Is so. It? Subscription options. Yeah, there we go. Subscription options. Right. Or and if then, you if you just go to the if you go to CatholicFamilyNews.com, the homepage, and click on the new subscription tab, it will take you to where Kennedy is um, right now. Yeah, right there. So, new subscription. New subscription. Yep. Boom. And then also, yeah. So there's lots. It's pretty easy. It's a good website. Easy to do. Ladies and gentlemen, forty bucks a year. Come on. Don't have. And like just to reiterate. If you wanted to gain access to these articles that we've been discussing today, you'll need to subscribe. I mean, you can always you can subscribe to get future paper editions if you'd like to, but it's through the e-edition that you'll gain access to these articles. Right, so because, you can yeah. and, and again, if you if you subscribe and want to get a physical paper, like I have the physical copy of the February paper here, um, you will gain automatic access to the e-edition in addition to getting the paper delivered to you. Excellent. So if you're, if you're sitting on the subway uh, or whatever on your way to work, sitting in traffic, and you want to just have something you can pull it on your iPad or your phone, give that a subscription. You can read that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I think that's it. Anything else to say before we go, Matt? Oh, just thanks for having me on, and I, I hope that the pilgrimage later this year is a great success. Godspeed yes. to you. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as always, let me know what you think in the comments. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless you all.